Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Turkey. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today, Dr. Philip Davies joins the show for a conversation that's going to explore what scholars know about how government functioned in classical Sparta. Dr. Davies is an assistant professor in ancient Greek history at the University of Nottingham, based in the UK. His research largely centers on classical Sparta and its representations in our predominantly non-Spartan sources. He has these two forthcoming books. He's co-editor of the forthcoming volume, Plutarch in Sparta, which will be published by Classical Press of Wales in 2022. And he's author of the forthcoming monograph, Standing Among the Spartans, Institutions and Status Within the Spartiate Community. And that will be published by Bloomsbury Academic also in 2022. And Dr. Davies joins the show today from the UK. Welcome to the show, Philip. Hello. So we chatted about time frame before the conversation, Philip, and we want to, and we discussed making sure it gets in the episode. So I want to start there. So we're going to chat about the classical Spartan period today. What, what, what period of time specifically mm -hmm. is that? So there are different sort of uh, time frames, exact dates that we can apply to what we mean by the classical period. A common one there would be to say 490 to 323. In the case of Sparta, I would say, particularly in relation to government and classical Sparta, we're really talking about um, later half of the 6th century, so let's say, roughly speaking, 550 to about 350. This is because um, that's a bit earlier than the uh, um, proper, let us say, uh, classical period. There's some evidence which we draw on, particularly from Herodotus, that comes in before uh, the um, common application, the common of uh, the uh, start of the uh, classical period. And that once we get to the 350s, um, certainly after the decline of the Spartan hegemony in the 370s, 370s, 360s, um, there's a lot of changes that go on, basically. And your Herodotus mention is a segue for the next question that I was and am going to ask, and it's on it's on sources. Yeah. So when when looking at this topic to understand better government in classical Sparta, what are the main sources that you and other scholars rely on, or the types of sources? There are ultimately two varieties of sources which give us very different perspectives. Unlike if we're talking about the case of government in classical Athens, epigraphy, inscriptions, you know, writing on stone plays a large role. That's really not the case with a, a couple of exceptions uh, in Sparta. There's far less, certainly from the classical period, far less epigraphy, far less inscriptions that survive. Um, so it's ultimately two types of textual sources. Um, we have sources that are, we could say, constitutional. They're interested in talking about Sparta um, as a society, as an, a, a, a construct and a, and a constitution. So Xenophon is a major source here. He provides an account of um, the Spartan constitution, much later source, but Plutarch, his life of Lycurgus, talks a lot about the Spartan, the different bodies that there are, different political bodies, you know, the different uh, structures of Spartan society. Um, and, excuse me, Aristotle, and also to an extent Herodotus give us sort of uh, insights of that kind. So that's one type of analysis, always coming from the outside because 
pretty much without exception, our sources are non-spark. So they're talking about you know uh, something that is not uh, their own system, as it were. We then have historical accounts, Herodotus, uh, Thucydides, and Xenophon in, in different works than his Constitution of the Spartans, where you can get insight, uh, never as, as detailed as we might like, because again, uh, the interior history of Sparta is uh, not being given great insight and very great detail in these uh, accounts, where we get to see these institutions in practice. There can often be quite a gap between the theoretical presentation of uh, Sparta's politics, Sparta's government uh, in the constitutional um, texts, and what we actually what we seem to be seeing in the actual performance of Spartan politics, these Spartan institutions, um, in the face of events. So some of these writers and historians who documented some of this material, either contemporarily or, or afterwards, if they weren't from Sparta, how how did they come across the information? How did they gain the knowledge that they they had to to um, to, to to write about Sparta? Is do scholars know, or is there things that you can infer? Well, Xenophon is is sort of the, the let's say the touchstone here because he is someone who certainly he uh, he knew Spartans. He spent time in Sparta, so. You could say he's the closest thing we get to an interior source. And it's sort of a point of discussion among scholars. How much can we treat him? Uh, he's an Athenian himself. Uh, but given his level of knowledge of Sparta, how much can we treat him as if he were a Spartan source? Or are there still significant, you know, the fact that he is not a, a native Spartan, that he is presenting his, his writings primarily to a non-Spartan audience, maybe, you know, as far as we can tell that there's a question of how much we can treat him as an internal source or not. And then you can sort of say it's sort of a, a sliding scale from that. Um, so for example, Herodotus and Thucydides, we have good indications that they had visited Sparta at least. In the case of Herodotus, it's quite interesting that not that common a thing for him. He suddenly at one point switches into just this long list of the rights and sort of uh, prerogatives and honors of the Spartan kings. He's not, this sort of list form is not usual for him. And so a common way of interpreting that is that he had access to some sort of um, you know, a written document, whether that be sort of inscribed on stone or a, a, a previous author or, or something from a Spartan archive, perhaps, that's listing down you know, what the, the rights of the kings are. <clears throat> so it's nice when we can try and trace that. Another key distinction is that with all of those, we're talking with classical period sources. Uh, Plutarch is an extremely important source uh, for understanding, well, any period of Spartan history, but let's say classical Sparta, since that's our, our current focus. But he is writing in the Roman period, he's in the second century AD. So um, he's writing at a, a very significant remove from when he's talking about classical Sparta, what he's describing. And there it's a question that in many cases, he has access to works that we don't have access to. Uh, that, that have been lost since then. <clears throat> so it becomes a question of how much we, um, how much of his presentation of Sparta we think is, is him and his own particular uh, conceptions, and how much we think is him 
you know, without too much distortion, reflecting the information that's being given to him by the, the sources he's able to draw on that we no longer are able to. So in preparing for the chat we're having, Philip, we, we chatted and you recommended compartmentalizing this conversation up into four sections, four, four, four offices. One might be a magistrate, um, and we'll get, we'll get to that one depending on definitions, but essentially four different governing types in, in Sparta in the classical period. So to create context, can you cover those four offices now? And then we'll, and then with a, with a brief summary, and then we'll work our way into the details for most of the conversation today of those uh, four different sections of government. Sure. I think that makes good sense. And yeah, as I say, we don't need to give an, uh, an equal amount of time to each of these, these things, but I think it's good to provide that overview at the start. So the first, um, perhaps we should say the most numerous, but the one that uh, I'll start off with is the Spartan Assembly itself. So this is the, the assembled uh, you know, numbers, uh, as many as would show up for the assembly meeting, which you know, we don't know the numbers there, uh, for the sort of full Spartan uh, citizens or the Spartiates. <clears throat> Bearing in mind that um, you know, this is not a, there's not a broad, um, in the case of Athens, there's a very broad, um, qualification of who counts as citizen. It's much, because there's a property qualification, this is a more narrow band in the case of Sparta. Um, the usual comparison we draw is with Athens. And certainly I think there's no question that uh, the Spartan assembly is more limited in its ability, in the ability of the citizens to sculpt, to, to originate, uh, you know, to <clears throat> control legislation than there is in the case of uh, Athens. Uh, but there is differences among scholars in how limited they think that process is. Uh, Paul Cartledge, a very famous Sparta scholar, would say that, uh, or has said, uh, that the Spartan Assembly was, in most cases, a rubber stamp. You know, that it was sort of, it would meet, it would convene, uh, you know, bearing in mind this is a sort of a city-state, um, and it would uh, have a vote, but that it has very little control over the process. Um, so that's, you know, sort of the most uh, baseline political role that every Spartan citizen has. In terms of then individual offices, there's the Spartan Gerousia, so the, the institution is the Gerousia, the, um, the office holders are the Garontes, literally elders or old men. Uh, so this is a council of 28 um, men uh, comprised of people who would be elected uh, for life uh, once they'd hit the age of 60. The Gerousia, the significance of being 28 is when you add in the kings, it then makes a, a nice round number of 30. That's why there's that particular figure there. As is common with these, uh, these offices, they mix roles. So on one hand, the Gerousia is the senior court of Sparta. They decide on very, they try significant matters like, for example, um, things that involve death sentence potentially, and for example, murder, uh, are, they fall within the provenance of the Gerousia. They're also a, what's called a probolutic body, which means that basically they consider legislation before it goes to the assembly. So if you follow the idea that the, um, the assembly is very limited in its authority, a lot of this would be originating with the, uh, <clears throat> with the Garantes. Um, 
The other elected office uh, on major Spartan political offices would be the ephors, literally overseers. Um, so this is a board of five ephors who are elected on a, a yearly basis from anyone who, or any full citizen, I should say, <clears throat> who is over the age of 30. 30 is a significant, uh, you know, we, we, we think of 21 or 18 as sort of a major threshold. Uh, you could say that immaturity, and in a lesser form, carries on further uh, in the Greek world. This is not limited to Sparta, but 30 is seen as being a major sort of uh, turning point there. Um, the Air Force have a wide variety of roles, um, which I won't try and list all of them here, but this is, includes a more minor judicial role compared to the Gerousia, um, administrative roles, and uh, also some sort of the receipt of diplomats, things like that. Um, so they, they have their things in a number of uh, pots, as it were. Um, but you could say that they are almost, a, a, on some level, they function as a representation, uh, a, a representative of the uh, assembly, of this, the Spartan uh, citizen populace. Um, to an extent, in contrast to the final of these uh, major offices, the Spartan kings. Um, most notably, and unusually, even within the context of the um, ancient world, although not uniquely, uh, the Spartan kingship is a diarchy, meaning at any given time there are two kings. Um, now, in the case of, of uh, Rome, it has, under the republican system, it has elected consuls, two of those. So that's something you can sort of see a comparison to. But these are not an elected office. These are um, kings who have a, a line of succession, ultimately, through two royal houses, who both ultimately claim descent from the same ancestors going back to Heracles. They are Heraclids, um, meaning that they, they claim descent from Heracles in a very direct manner. So that's a, the, a basic overview. That would be a, a, a there for you. Okay, thank you, Philip. That creates um, certainly sufficient context, and we can work our way into some of the details. Is from an analogy perspective, is it reasonable, do you think, to call the Gerousia, or I don't want to start calling it that, but is it from, a, from to, analogous, can you reasonably call it an analogy with a, a Senate in, in that kind of function? You mentioned that they one of their duties is to review uh, bills before, before they become... Uh, law. I think you said. I think you mentioned before they get to the assembly. Um, is that is yeah. that a reasonable uh, thing to like in 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 function? They act somewhat as a as a as a senate, and then the F four. I believe you, you mentioned that the the uh, F four um, along the same lines. Could you almost look at them as an executive of the assembly? Um, in the case of the Gerousia, certainly. You know, we, with the stipulation, of course, that this is not a perfect comparison, it's certainly a comparison you can make. And indeed, in concept, you know, the Senate, of course, takes its name from ancient Rome. Um, that comes from, it derives from the Latin term senex, which relates to, you know, um, old man. So it's a similar, you know, sort of uh, concept there of notions of age importing, uh, you know, uh, implying um, both you know, wisdom and sort of authority, et cetera, et cetera. It, it is a key point that it's, um, <clears throat> that the Senate, takes its, uh, sorry, <laughs> falling into the trick uh, myself now, that the Gerousia acts before the assembly does. Uh, it can then also, let's say, potentially act thereafter, 
Uh, so, it, but it, it's coming in uh, before it goes to the uh, the full uh, citizen assembly. So that's a, an important point there. Um, with the um, the Air Force, there's certainly a component of that, that the executive, the trick there is that they have such a, a mixture of roles. So for example, they, as I said, minor judicial roles, including contract law and things like that. Um, they receive diplomats. There's a comparison we can draw there, I think, that is uh, not, uh, not, not inappropriate. Um, they also, which I suppose in the case of, of um, in, in the American case would make sense in relation to the vice president, they serve as the chairs for the meetings of the assembly, which um, is not an executive role, but it is, does actually have an interesting comparison to draw with uh, Senate procedures as far as uh, my limited understanding of American politics is concerned. Yeah, and was there ever a case, I know some uh, boards, for, for instance, will have, uh, directors on on a board and then and then board members certain board members will also serve on an executive it's almost like a committee and there'll be predefined instances when the executive can actually make can can in in a lot of ways act as the broader board but in very predefined ways let's say if it's a, over a certain period of time when the board can't you know, the entire board can't sit so, so uh, and make you know you know pass motions and and all that all, all those things. So, is 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 it in the records at all if the executive ever could act? So these five board members could could act instead of the of the assembly under certain predefined conditions. It's actually it's a very nice example here of some of the the problems of both the the, the insights we get from our sources and the limitations. Um, so. Um, Xenophon records a, an apparent uh, conspiracy to sort of create a popular revolt and overthrow the uh, Spartan state. Um, you have blood in the streets. That, that's, you know, that's the impression we get from this. You know, um, blood in the streets, you know, uh, heads on pitchforks, that sort of thing. And uh, they find out about this because an informer goes to the Force and you know, tells them that this is happening. And the Force, recognizing that they need to deal with this very quickly, you know, very... Uh, and very sort of very clandestinely, um, Xenophon tells us that they convene a meeting of the Mikra Ecclesia, so the little assembly. So Ecclesia is the word for, you know, for the, the um, word Xenophon uses for the assembly uh, in the general sense of the, the citizen assembly. And there's this, uh, there's a meeting of this, uh, sorry, um, I'm sorry, I'm actually, I, I'm, I'm misremembering. This is they don't even that's the point, that they don't even call a meeting of the little assembly, but instead just pick up individual garantes, individual members of the uh, Gerousia, or to follow the comparison, Senate. The, um, the tantalizing thing from a scholarly perspective is when he says they don't even summon the so-called little assembly, we don't know what that is. Uh, we only know about it because he mentions it. He's clearly using some sort of, you know, this is a, a, a sort of a, a, a local term. He's showing his insider knowledge in that way, but we we don't know what it is. And there are different suggestions. Is this does is that like another name for the Gerousia because it's a smaller council? Is this sort of a special thing where if the Efors and the Garantes uh, get together, then they can form a body that can take decisions when the assembly can't meet? And so it's like the little assembly. 
and you know there are different suggestions, but fundamentally we we cannot settle that question because we have we know enough to know that there was a thing there. We don't know enough to know exactly what that thing was. So it can be quite frustrating. Okay, but that's still a um, an, an interesting and useful an anecdote that you provided. The assembly. So we're all Spartan citizens part of the assembly and who were citizens of Sparta in this period of time. In, in other words, to the latter question, when looking at all the inhabitants of Sparta, were there types of people that would have been not eligible to serve on the assembly? Certainly. Um, so when we talk about Spartan society, we generally talk about three major social groups. Uh, the Spartiates, which are, you know, I'll be uh, detailing more in just a second, uh, the Perioiki, and the Helots. The Helots are, um, sometimes they're described as being like serfs, sometimes they're described as being sort of quasi-slaves. They are, in, in essence, they are the servile population of, um, of uh, Sparta and its territory. And so you know, they certainly don't have any sort of any political role. The Perioiki, who are, so their name literally means the dwellers around, so I want to say neighbors, are communities that live within Spartan territory, um, bearing in mind that Sparta controls uh, basically the entire southern half of the uh, Peloponnese in the, so, uh, the, the southern part of Greece during the um, classical period. Um, the Perioiki have sort of a local autonomy. They, are, they, they have their own local government, but they are not part of the Spartan assembly. They, you know, they did not have they follow the Spartan lead as far as um, larger uh, foreign policy issues and things like that are concerned until they revolt. That's a separate concern. Um, what makes this more complicated again is, as I mentioned previously, the citizenship in Sparta um, has a property qualification to it. And one of the processes we see over the course of the classical period is a seeming diminution, a seeming um, drop in the numbers of Spartan citizens. Um, and this uh, is um, seemingly because not so much, well, not entirely because of a loss in the physical numbers, they got an actual this failure to procreate, but because some Spartans are, uh, some Spartans are no longer Spartans, we could say that some Spartans are um, falling foul of this property qualification. And so they are still there, but they are no longer have the political rights of a Spartan citizen, what we generally call a Spartiate. Um, the conspiracy I mentioned, the conspiracy of Kinodon, is so-called because it's led by uh, a figure called Kinodon, and he seemingly is one of these sorts of people. He's what's known as an inferior, a hupomeon, um, so he's not one of the uh, one of the Spartan citizens. And uh, now there are different reasons that could be. It could be a sort of a loss of uh, sort of uh, certain crimes committed or things like that. But it could simply be that he or his his immediate family, his ancestors, uh, were not able to pay the price of being a Spartan citizen anymore. This seems to be where his his desire to overthrow the system comes from. So. so when referencing a Spartan citizen, is that synonymous with Spartiate? In general usage, I say yes, basically. Okay. 
could women ever serve on the assembly? No. Um, yeah, I think I'll just answer that as a straight no. Uh, obviously, our evidence is limited, but no. There, there is generally there's a thing that um, Spartan women, particularly let's say more well-born, um, affluent women, seem to have they have it better, let's say, in Sparta than they do in the case of um, Athens in particular, as our, our most obvious sort of point of comparison. Uh, but this does not extend to them having formal political rights. Um, it's basically that um, if you have money, and there are, particularly through inheritance, there, is, there, there are questions of uh, Spartan women of, of a certain class being able to access uh, money and wealth, that you have a greater capacity to use it um, in, in Sparta than you would as a woman in Athens. Okay. How large was the assembly and how often did they meet? These are questions that are difficult to answer in a, in a definite form. The, the question of exactly how often they would meet is very much a, a question mark. We don't have that, uh, that information. It doesn't help here that some of this is an aspect where some of our more, uh, uh, our most detailed information is coming from some of our latest sources. So in the case of Plutarch. In terms of numbers, so ultimately the question of how large the assembly could be is the question of how large uh, the Spartan citizen population you know, uh, is. Um, Plutarch refers to an idea of there being 9,000 uh, at, at some point in time um, to do with sort of the troop numbers in the, um, during the period of Persian Wars. Uh, we have suggestions of there being at least um, 8,000 but over the course of the classical period, this diminishes uh, significantly. And um, Aristotle gives us the, uh, gives the impression that there's basically, this is somehow dropped to uh, a thousand. So that would be a, you know, a very precipitous drop in numbers over the course of the classical period, basically. And how many of those would be at any given meeting of the assembly, bearing in mind you have to actually be there, is, you know, we can't have a figure for that, but you know, obviously, a fraction or you know, um, some fraction of that larger total. What were the main? So, what I want to make sure we we cover enough in this in this conversation is how all of this functioned together. These these different institutions, Philip. So let's let what we haven't touched on much yet is the the diarchy. So let's go there next. And then I want I want us to spend some time in understanding how all this function to 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 govern the state. So in this period of time, was there always two kings that were ruling? Yes, there would always be two kings in place. Um, so uh, the diarchy is a very good example of what I was saying about it at the start where there's a potential contrast between the theoretics of how the Spartan governmental system works and how it potentially works you know, in practice. Um, so Aristotle describes Spartan kingship as an example of uh, basileia katanomon. So you might say constitutional kingship or kingship under, under law. So it's the idea that the Spartan kings are constrained to particular spheres. You know, they are not all powerful. Uh, or, or anything like that. Um, this is also the fact that there's always two kings, so there can, you know, there frequently is rivalry between those two kings, and they can be pursuing uh, conflicting uh, agendas. 
And then that provides more opportunity for other political bodies, for the assembly to play a role in deciding which way things are going to go, ultimately. The, um, the powers of the kings, in terms of formal, you know, uh, as it were, written down uh, powers, are predominantly in the political, sorry, in the military and in the religious sphere. Uh, because they are meant to be descended from Heracles, because they have this sort of, they go back to the foundation of Sparta, because both claim, both houses claim the same descent. Ultimately, the the story, as the Spartans would say it, is that uh, ultimately one of their kings um, has twins, uh, and that they end up making both sons kings. That's how this this system comes about in their telling of it. You know, whether we believe that is a different question. Um, so they had important roles in terms of performing sacrifices for the uh, safety of the state, uh, of holding, you know, they hold particular priesthoods uh, and things like that. And there's various sort of uh, particular rights, particular responsibilities uh, that they hold in that regard. They also um, are not in every instance, but they are, you could say, the default commanders of the Spartan army. And certainly in the vast majority of instances, if uh, if you're not dealing with a small contingent, but with the Spartan army going out in the field, one of the Spartan kings will be um, will be running that, will be leading that force. We're told that at one point, originally, both kings would actually go forward with the army. Both kings would would be on campaign together. There's a particular incident recorded by Herodotus where the two uh, you know, kings who are reigning at the same time, Cleomenes and Demaratus, basically have an argument about uh, policy whilst on campaign, and this leads to sort of a disintegration of the, uh, of, of the campaign. And so after that, they decide that at any given time, only one king will actually uh, be, be uh, in charge of leading a campaign. So one's at home and one's out on campaign. That's the uh, story we're told by Herodotus. Um, you can also see this uh, this military leadership role. It's very important for establishing sort of the prestige, the authority of a king. You know that that's how they can uh, one of the ways one of the ways in which they can make a name for themselves. Um, but you can see this also being tied to that sort of almost the totemic significance of the kings in religious terms um, that they are they are leading. Um, one of the things Herodotus says in the the list of rights, which I said about is that anyone who uh, sort of opposes the king in leading the army will be subject to a curse, which how much that was the case in the classical period in real terms is a question mark, um, but there's certainly that suggests perhaps a religious um, overtone to all of this. Though the interesting contrast is that, um, as I said, military and religious, there are there is clear distinct roles of the king. In the political, in the sort of the civic uh, political decision-making process, that is much less the case. The kings are members of the gerousia; they're members of that uh, senate, as it were, by virtue, you know, ex officio, as it were. Uh, so, although they are not over the age of sixty, um, but they don't have a role. They don't have a formal role of leading the Spartan assembly. That's what the ephors. They don't have a formal role beyond that of being in the Gerousia in terms of sculpting uh, policy when it goes forward. But when the Spartan kings 
are apparent in our historical sources, they clearly can have a lot of influence. And this, this ultimately comes down to what you might call the, the incumbency factor. Um, the kings are, by definition, powerful, wealthy individuals. But more, uh, perhaps more importantly, they can be kings for 20, 30, 40 years. And there are multiple instances of, of kings during the uh, classical period who uh, have reigns of that sort of length. In some instances, they start off as children, so there would have been a regent you know, ruling for them. But in other instances, this is you know, um, 30 plus years of genuine rule. In comparison, the, the Gerousia is an appointment for life, but you can only be elected to it once you're the age of 60. The F4s are a one-year position. And as far as we can tell, you can't iterate that. You know, people don't make a career out of being F4, as you can in uh, following the analogy we used earlier in, say, uh, Congress uh, or, uh, or in the uh, Senate. They can't um, do this again and again and again. We don't see people making careers out of being F4. So this means that uh, the kings have a big advantage in terms of being in position and in a leading position in Spartan society for a long time. And so they are able to establish uh, authority, to establish um, um, connections and influences, et cetera, uh, in a way that most other political players will not be able to do that. And so that's where um, the theoretical limits of, of Spartan kingship are you know, somewhat, but which we get in the, in the constitutional uh, documents, the likes of Aristotle, um, are not necessarily reflected when we're actually looking at the, the history, the actual sort of uh, the experience of particular events. The tradition of the kings being within lineage of Heracles, when you've gone through the sources and certain writers wrote about that, is there anything that when you read when you read those citations alludes to the writer's opinion about the historicity of that tradition? Mm -hmm. I think certainly among ancient writers, the question of how much significance they import to that uh, does vary. So, for example, from Xenophon, in his constitutional writing, it's very clear that so he says that they, they perform the sacrifices on the grounds of being descended from a god. Uh, so you know, that's, you know, that's very, a very clear line that's being drawn. He also says that um, Spartan kings have a, it's debated exactly how we should describe this, but that they achieve a quasi sort of hero cult status when they die, which is, again, uh, there are other ways this can happen for other people in the ancient world, but it's not a common feature. It's the idea that, again, this is a, um, the religious you know, component of this, this office. There are other authors who do not apply that uh, emphasis to it. So Thucydides doesn't say uh, so much about this, for example, though generally Thucydides is, he doesn't attribute things to the gods as much as, um, as some authors do. Um, but there's, I think, you don't really get sources who are questioning this, you know, who are questioning the the the, the idea that they would uh, would be able to legitimately claim such a descent, which it, it's not, you know, they are not unique in doing this within the ancient world. 
there are many aristocratic families who will claim descent ultimately from one particular hero or divinity or something like that. Yeah, and the um, the the exact um, person or the the, uh, the 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 number in their in their in their name slip in my mind now, but one of the kings of and you might even even know Philip, one of the kings of uh, Ma- Macedonia, I believe, or had claimed uh, lineage to a, a certain Greek deity so that he could participate in the ancient Olympic Games. Yeah, and this is the, actually that's an interesting because if you followed that back far enough, you could claim the Macedonian uh, royal family, the Argeas, and the uh, Spartan royal family are related. It's very common to claim descent from Heracles as a particular, you know, he's particularly popular in this sort of way. And this is, no, you're, you're thinking, I think, of um, Alexander, uh, not, not Alexander the Great, what's known as Alexander Philhellene, an earlier um, King Alexander of Macedon, who tries to compete in the Olympic Games. He originally is refused, and although he doesn't dispute that Macedonians, he says, you know, it, all, it, it would be claimed at that time, were not necessarily Greek, he and his royal family uh, are able to claim descent back to Argos, the neighboring state from Sparta, and that you know, through that, he does have uh, you know, heroic lineage, he does have Greek lineage, and so he is allowed to, to participate in the games. Yeah, my, uh, I was, I was, I was, I was uh, nudging to say a, a, a Philip. Um, my, my odds were probably going to be really, really good if I mentioned a Philip uh, in association to, to the kingdom of Ma- Macedon. Um, but I had a I had a feeling too it might not have been that. That's why I left the name I left I left the name out. <laughs> so, in terms of passing laws, were all of the laws in ancient Sparta pat, run through the Gerosia, and then eventually were voted on by the assembly? So 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 specifically were all the laws within the state in this period of time that we're speaking about run through those two offices? In theory, let's say, yes. The question of in practice is, you know, again, how much the uh, F4s might be able to uh, manage things, uh, you know, to, to, to um, respond to events, I suppose, might be a way of saying that. Um, the, the sort of the process of lawmaking that we get, particularly the sort of question of the role of the Gerousia, uh, this is one of those instances where um, Plutarch, one of our later sources, is one of our, our most significant. He recounts a, a, um, a document uh, called the Great Retra. So the suggestion is that in the archaic period, exactly when we would want to place that is a, a big, you know, big question mark. And indeed, some people would suggest that this is actually sort of a this this document is actually a, a later sort of um, retrospective construct. It's not really. A bit of you know archaic Sparta that's managed to survive all the way down to Plutarch, but that suggests that you know they set up this this pattern where the the Gerousia discusses uh, discusses um, a, a set policy a decision. They then bring this to the assembly and the assembly um, uh, votes on it. But in that uh, section of, of Plutarch's life of Lycurgus, what we're told is that um, the people begin to distort the motions. And a rider is added saying that if the people judge crookedly, the particular word, you know, they, they make crooked judgments, um, then the kings and the Gerousia will have the power of withdrawing. 
and there's a there, there's a huge amount of ink spilled on exactly what that means. The a common reading this goes back to the idea that the assembly is more limited in the case of Sparta is that ultimately the Spartans you know they're meant to just vote up or down. They can't start adding you know uh, adding amendments uh, to, to to the policies here. And if they do. If it's if it's decided that they are you know, are changing the meaning of what was presented to them by the Gerousia, then they can actually pull the vote. Uh, so that's one of the sort of uh, key points in this this um, the idea of this um, more restricted vote, uh, more restricted capacity for um, political involvement by by the basic Spartan citizens, as it were. What percentage? of approval to a bill was required? Is anything known about a quorum that was required? Um, I think ultimately we'd be talking a straight uh, up and down vote here. Um, you know, so it's not, not, not a sort of a two-thirds majority type thing. Uh, we don't have a definitive statement on that, but I think that would be the, sort of the default to be thinking of there. An interesting, you know, uh, one of the sort of instances where we get a very, which is you know, not that common, we get a developed insight into a um, an instance of internal Spartan you know, um, politics in action, as it were, uh, is the decision to go to war, basically. The decision uh, that, that the Athenians have broken the existing peace, um, which leads to the Peloponnesian War. There we're told that there, um, there's a vote by uh, shouting because the default for the Spartan assembly is that you vote by shouting in the first instance, uh, not by actually, you know, not by casting ballots or gathering in or show of hands or things like that. Um, there's a vote by shouting, and the ephor who is chairing the meeting, because remember the ephors have that role, is an ephor called Stenelidas. Um, he declares that he cannot tell, uh, he cannot tell what the um, you know, what the outcome is from the voice vote. Uh, this would actually, I don't know, you know how this works in Canada or even the American Senate, but uh, it's not uncommon in the uh, UK House of Parliament that you will do a voice vote first, uh, and you know, except on perhaps very major issues. And if it is manifestly clear that it's sort of 90% one way or you know, and 10% the other, then that can be, that can be uh, sufficient. Um, but... Obviously, if it's more uncertain, then it will, uh, will change. In this case, we're told that the Ephesus and Elidas, we're told that by Thucydides that ultimately he already kind of, he already knows which way it's going, but he wants to sort of uh, to force the issue and he wants to really make it clear. And so he asks that everyone basically moves to one side or the other. You know, they're outside, but you know, it's in, in metaphorically moving to one side of the room or the other. Uh, so that they have to actually publicly show which way they're going to vote here. Um, and when he does that, you know, the result is it, it's a very clear majority uh, for the idea that the Athenians are to blame here and they are going to go, you know, ultimately going to go to war. Um, so, you know, implicitly it's the idea that people who might have been tempted to sort of shout for peace when they actually have to not do that as part of a crowd, but instead actually show themselves individually, they might, you know, they might quieten down and sort of go the other way instead. In principle, then, was it was it majority to make the decisions, regardless of the the mechanism? It sounds like the, there's 
they're 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 shouting at, in certain stages. Other stages, they might be physically moving. Is it is it in principle the ma majority makes those decisions? Yeah, yeah, the, the principle is that of, of majority when it's at the point of the vote. But of course, the role that a minority of people in terms of the Gerousia, etc., and the kings have had in influencing and shaping all of this beforehand is uh, is quite significant. But the principle certainly, I'd say, is one of, of majority. Okay. So in wrapping up in a few moments, Philip, is there anything we haven't covered on this topic that you want to make sure gets in this episode? Or is there something that we did cover, but you want to emphasize inside of a closing context? No, I think we've done, you know, we've covered the main points that I wanted to cover there. I'm sure I'll think of something, you know, about 10 minutes after this recording finishes uh, that we could have added. There are all sorts of, you know, anecdotes that could be added, not least the fact that uh, the According to Plutarch, the, the uh, um, election procedure for things like the Garantes is also done by um, uh, shouting rather than an actual sort of counting of votes, which one might see as being a bit um, primitive, let's say. Um, but I think in terms of the key points to cover and sort of the, the balance of power and the, the, the potential contrast between the theoretical and the, the, uh, the practical or the actual, the day-to-day, as far as Spartan politics works, I think that's the main points I wanted to get across. Fascinating chat today, Philip. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge. Thank you very much. So again, everybody, Dr. Davies has a couple books that are forthcoming. He's co-editor of the forthcoming volume Plutarch and Sparta and author of the forthcoming monograph, Standing Among the Spartans institutions and status within the Spartiate community. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Philip and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.